don't get too attached. Uh, you're Matt Bull. I am, and you are Liz Golding. And this is Questionable People. Uh, it's a podcast. Where we ask people questions. It is. And I mean, I still am I'm in awe of ourselves for coming up with this format every time. Uh, episode four. Is this that what this is? We it did is. it. We're at least at the number we said we needed to do. Um, like is, I said, we I didn't want to start unless we did at least four episodes. That feels like an important milestone. Yep. Congratulations. Cheers. 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 Um, is there any uh, lingering resentment from the last episode that we need to work through on air? Uh, I'm fine. Are you? Are you? Yeah, I mean, I am actually fine. Okay. Cool. Just making sure. You know. Yeah. We were worried that this would create some tension in, in our friendship, and I just, you know, it's worth, worth checking in now and then. I'm good. Okay. I do. I feel like I need to personally oh. take responsibility for um, our previous guest, Alice Lasad was on. She was a, um, what was the award she won? The James Beard Award. <laughs> and I felt the need to, to, to make myself feel, feel better for not having a James Beard Award by mentioning how many people I knew that had James Beard Awards. And it turns out that none of the people I said actually have that award. That they were just shortlisted for it. Yeah, which makes it even yeah. better. So it makes that story mm-hmm. really good. So today we have another award winner that I get to try to denigrate to make myself <laughs> feel better for not having an Edward R. Murrow award. I was planning to ask you if you knew three people that had won <laughs> Edward R. Murrow <laughs> See, we're, awards. We're on the same page already. Yep. I love it. I love it. Uh, so speaking of that, here's Thorne Anderson. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, Thorne Anderson, uh, I think we said you were going to introduce him, didn't we? I'm... I think we did, argued about this. Did we? <laughs> I, I would say Thorne is a friend of mine. Would you say we're friends? Of course. Yeah, we all live in the same neighborhood. Um, Thorne is a professor at UNT. I'm, I'm actually an associate professor. See, that's so my, huh? See, I can associate I don't have with the whole list. What I mean, how how do you tell people to introduce you? You're Thorne Anderson, associate professor of journalism at UNT. You're also a conflict photographer, photojournalist? Sure. I'm a photojournalist. Yeah. And then we discussed earlier you teach your students about <clears throat> all different formats of Journalism? You say that's fair? I think everyone who teaches photojournalism teaches students video and audio these days. Because that's the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. Because people don't look at things unless they're moving? Yeah. I mean, there just aren't that many jobs for people to do exclusively still photography anymore. There are some, but most people are going to have to survive by doing other things. And one of those other things for you is teaching. Yeah, for me, it's, yeah. Uh, that's pretty much all I do now. <laughs> so explain the, the power dynamic of, so you are an associate professor, but I suspect there aren't professors that also have Edward R. Murrow Awards. So technically, you're better than them. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you're the only you're one in the whole planet. <laughs> I mean, it's like the military, right? You go up through a, a ranking system. Okay. And so you start off, if you're on the tenure track, you're an assistant professor. So you're like a lieutenant. And then eventually you get promoted to associate professor, then you're like a lieutenant colonel maybe. And then you get full professor, then you're like a full colonel. And then you go into administration and then you're sort of in the general ranks. 
<laughs> do, but if you make too big of a splash at the low levels, do they like like in your case having the super fancy oh, like, journalism award? Do they like do people try to keep their boots on your throat? I am sure there are some people who are more impressive than I am who could manage to make their way through these ranks. Uh, they could leapfrog over the existing barriers, but you know the the process is pretty. It's written actually in your contract okay. how many years you have to wait before you can go up for promotion. Okay. <laughs> Matt's going to bring up the award so many times. Oh, you won't believe it. <laughs> until you're so embarrassed you disappear, basically. Uh-huh. Um, was, we got to back up and do two pieces of business. One is, this is, uh, Thorne, this is the boundary button here. This is this right here. If, we, if any of our questioning causes you any kind of discomfort, you tap that, and we'll add a sound effect later. And okay. And we'll move on to the next question. So it's in place no of questions. a safe word or something. It's, it's yeah. Exactly. Okay. It is a, yep. a safe word. Uh, uh, that's that. And then um, I forgot that we had we intend to ask our, our male guests to uh, tell us about who they're wearing. So uh, how did you choose this outfit today? Um, uh, basically, I go to Buffalo Exchange and whenever I have time oh, yeah. and I and I choose everything that fits me. OK, perfect. Yeah, that's like my, my entire fashion strategy right there. So did someone help you with this outfit? Was there any? Uh, I think I think my daughter, my four year old, was in the store and she was encouraging me to move faster. Okay. So just, it made me make up my mind quicker. Just to paint a word picture for our listeners, I, I think it's important that they get a sense of the, the fashion presence here. We have, um, I mean, an, uh, I, jaunty, I think, is the first word I think of looking. We got a, a sort of painterly blue um, uh, button-down shirt, uh, the top button uh, undone, uh, a little distressed kind of texture to it, some, some, let's see, the jeans here are, are black, also distressed with some extraneous stitching that uh, yeah. I think is... Uh, Photojournalists always have worn-out knees on their yeah. jeans. It's cool. a thing. Excellent. Do you have any, any fashion-related questions? We spend a lot like of time kneeling to take photographs. No, I think you did a great job. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, okay, so those are the two the two pieces of... There's another piece. There's another piece? We have to... Oh, re- we do. We have to... So last uh, episode, Matt brought up rating our friendships. That's right. That's the thing we do on this do podcast. It, and I said I wasn't going to rate friendships because if I had to rate every friendship, I would... Friendship, I was afraid that was going to cause conflict. And then the fan mail flooded in saying what a terrible idea it was to not let Liz uh, rate friendships. I mean, it was a, a staggering volume of fan One mail. person texted me I didn't and realize said they you were, were disappointed. So, so pliable. I didn't think I was going to win this argument. Actually, my biggest issue is it would bother me if you and the guest rated each other's friendships and then the guest just rated our friendship and it wasn't even. Yeah. Like the asymmetry there is yeah. too, it, so, okay. it feels too chaotic. And so I, 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 it's fine. Cool. I just want to sit in my victory of, of winning my first podcast related argument for a minute. It's, uh, it feels pretty good. So and I, I honestly didn't know that there was, you know, that that's plot, that the text avenue was the way to, to win these kind of arguments. Is this how you, um, abandoned veganism did somebody text you and say hey you should eat meat and you're like yeah all right no, no. is this how you sit in victory in, i thought you were going to be quiet did i say it was going to be quiet no i just made an assumption <clears throat> uh okay cool so okay so we're gonna have thorn rate each of our friendships on a scale of one to ten you know, I did my research, and I listened to the last three wow. podcasts. No, you, no didn't. you didn't. I totally did. Oh, no. Not only is this our second guest, it's our first guest that's listened to us before. I, I'm uh, a journalist. What do you expect? Uh, so I, I found that you have a safe rut. 
So, like, I can just say our friendship's a four, and I'm, like, good no matter what. But I decided ahead of time that I was going to push you to a five, Liz, because I'm pretty sure, though I can't remember specifically, I'm pretty sure that we peed in the woods together at some point. <laughs> if you gave me the same number that Alice had given me, I think I would have been a little hurt. Oh, yeah. We're a better friend. I think I know you better than I know Alice. Yeah, so uh, Thorne and I spent quite a few times... Quite a few years we trail ran together. That's right. Uh, so I think when you trail run, there's always a time when you pee in the woods. Yeah. It's inevitable. So you can't go below a five if you've done that together. For sure. Yeah. There you go. For sure. But we don't trail run together anymore because... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I got an injury. I was going to say we got old ago. and broken down. Yeah, yeah, we started to get... Yeah. I mean, broken. also people got busy, but I think mostly it was the broken. Yeah, I got broken. That took me out for about a year. Yeah. What kind of broken? Uh, I had an Achilles injury. Oh, no. Yeah. Do you Don't remember do that, that fad of of zero drop shoes? Uh-huh. You know, I, where, like, I'm still in that. Fad. Yeah. So, but the problem with I'm, that is it flexes your Achilles. Yes, and for some does. people, it's not a big deal. For some people like me, it can make you stop running yep. for a year. Yep. I um I got a I I barefoot ran for quite a while and got a stress fracture and had to stop for a while and I'm still slowly getting back into it. But. Yeah, I've gone the other way now. I wear the maximum cushion. Okay. Yeah. How's that? I look very geriatric on the trail. <laughs> yeah, big marshmallows. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so did we go? We got we went five. So he gave four me this a, way. He gave me a five. He you you went is that I missed that you said five. Yeah, okay. I said five. And which and now it's your turn. I hadn't really thought about it. You think I would have? I was gonna say maybe five and a half. Oh, see, you that you've you've ceded all the power in this relationship now. Like I, I, the goal of this is to is to be the one with the lower number, so that you have some control over the the future of the friendship. You've also introduced fractions, which is really complicated. It now. is. Yeah. Now now you're on a one hundred point scale. I like that better. There's more. Yeah, okay, five point five five. You know, I just was trying to be honest. I wasn't trying to manipulate. Okay. But I, but you feel free to. Yeah. Do whatever you want. I, I mean, I I would say three. For, like I. I was right there. You that was uh, yeah. The it's exactly that. Right, I was perfect. holding the number three right there yeah. in my head. And it, we know each other really really well. We just don't like each other that much. So it goes <laughs> it goes down. To <laughs> Actually, no. We we have hung out maybe three times, and yeah. we I, we like each other, but we don't know each other. All that Always much. enjoy hanging out yeah. with you. And we've bonded over uh, the pastor father uh, thing. That's both, right. Uh, and we both really like disappointed hanging out with them. your wife as well. Oh yeah yeah. yeah. yeah I like your wife. You like my wife. Yeah totally. Um, cool. So three and three. Uh, all right. That, that order of business is done. Um, you want to, you want to take the first question? The first real question? Uh, so for people that don't know you, you have spent a lot of time living in other countries. Um, you were in Kosovo? No. I have. Yeah. You were there for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you also were in Afghanistan uh, during the beginnings of the I, U.S. war. I arrived in Afghanistan after the Taliban fell in the most recent invasion. Okay. And then you were also in Iraq? Mm-hmm. And I was in Iraq before the U.S. Before Army war. invaded. That's oh, f- Yeah, in the most war. recent invasion. 
Oh four was the beginning of the most recent. Oh, you're gonna no. Now I'm gonna do dates. Let's see. Oh, sorry. so 2003. Okay, you were there in 03. Yeah, and I'm, well, I was actually there in 2002. Okay, and you had you had a hit put out on you by a general of the Makhdi army, as I recall. Oh yeah, I don't know if a hit it would be accurate, um, but. So, all right, maybe it just required. I mean, this sounds way more like dramatic and specific to me than oh, yeah, it is. No. These like are all kinds of, our, of things every, that happen. Every uh, conflict <laughs> photojournalist I hang out with has these kind of stories. So, yeah, yeah, you uh, might be surprised. They, they probably do. You're the only conflict basically. photojournalist I hang out with. <laughs> uh, I mean, basically, at that time I was working in Iraq and I made it a point not to embed with U.S. forces. Um, and instead to photograph from Iraqi points of view. And how, how did you come to that, Does, if I can interrupt, which I'll do a lot, I apologize in advance. Oh, well, I mean, we'll go back to um, before the war. Okay. You know, I, um, and this is really weird, but there was a big part of me that wanted to go to Iraq before the U.S. invasion because I'd covered other conflicts before that were already in progress. And I kind of wanted to see what happens, be, you know, to compare like a before and after. And that sounds so stupid. And it sounds to people who don't um, don't have those kinds of experiences. It sounds cynical and and harsh. And, and <laughs> but, you know, it's I really felt like I would understand the whole thing better if I went before. So I went when Saddam was in power. And, and then I was there during the U.S. during the U.S. bombing, the shock and awe campaign. And I was there afterwards. And because I had the experience of being there before, I didn't rely on U.S. troops as much. So I had, so you had a more contacts. I had a okay. network. And I thought, when I looked around at what other journalists were doing, I thought, well, the best contribution I can make is to work entirely with Iraqi people. So that's it. Okay. Yeah. And then what that leads to, though, is, you know, there was an insurgency. So I ended up working with you know, um, following around Iraqi insurgents. And, and you know, I just, I got to know people who were in the insurgency. They let me hang out with them and photograph. I mean, I wasn't a part of the insurgency. I was just a journalist. And in the further you get into a network like that, you meet the true believers, who are the people who really believe in the cause. But if you also meet, like, the gangsters, the mm -hmm. people who are just there to make a profit. And those people don't really like the journalists hanging around. And, uh, yeah, so I fell afoul of one of those, I see. basically. And how did you hear about falling afoul of this person? Uh, I had, he had started to harass other journalists who were going into what used to be called Saddam City and was later called Sadr City mm -hmm. after the invasion. Yeah. Um, and he had begun harassing other journalists and shaking them down for money every time they would try to visit Sadr City. And really, some stupid journalists actually did pay that money. I would never do that. Uh, and so I avoided him and, you know, dodged him here and there. And eventually, he tracked me down and he knew that I had been coming in and out. He found me, took my driver and my translator, separated us. And uh, my wife was with me at the time. She was also a photojournalist. He put us in the backseat of a car and interrogated us and made it clear that, you know, that we were going to have trouble if we came back again without going through him first. And that was the end of your time in Iraq? 
that was, um, yeah, I pretty much was fed okay. up by that point. Now, it was an accumulation of things that had happened right before that. I was pretty stressed out by that point. I would imagine. Yeah. Goodness. But it did make it just really hard for me to do the one thing that I was most qualified to do, which was to work in Sutter City. And, and I was exhausted and I was ready to go. Yeah, I bet. Um, so the that experience, you were you were with an insurgent group. As I recall, there were many distinct insurgencies that all had their own agendas, which was... Like That's you true. You summarize. can sort of break it down into like the Sunni insurgency and the Shia okay. insurgency. And I, and I tried to, to get into both and had various levels of success, but primarily the Shia insurgency is where I really had the most access. And the Sunni insurgency was sort of infiltrated with you know, Saudis and Al-Qaeda type people, and it was a lot creepier to hang out with them. And it's not to say that there weren't creepy elements on the Shia side, but, right. you know, I, I mean, I spent a, a day in in, um, in the Anbar Triangle um, in a house with four Saudis who were clearly not from Iraq and were almost certainly linked with Al-Qaeda mm. and trying to negotiate a way out of that house uh, without leaving with them and you know th those kinds of things leave an impression on oh me. <laughs> i bet so um I, ha I mean i have to imagine there there were more than i mean not just in iraq but afghanistan and uh, bulgaria um uh, that where you felt cl like the potential for grievous bodily harm was um more strong and present than otherwise is but the first the first time you hear a bullet while you're working, yeah. like the first time you hear a gunshot while you're working as a as a journalist, you're pretty sure it's coming for you. And then after a while, you realize, like, there's a big space around you, like the sky has <laughs> lots of space and bullets are really, really tiny, big sky, tiny bullets. So you realize that not every bullet's going to hit you. And you realize that you can work in conditions that you previously thought were impossible to work in. And little by little by little by little, you get deeper and deeper until you find yourself doing things that really you shouldn't be doing. But your judgment has been so eroded by that point that uh -huh. it seems normal. I can imagine so. Can you remember, a, a, in retrospect, a time that you uh, may have pushed it too far, that you, that you regret taking a risk that obviously ended up okay? but. I, there have been lots of times, and there's a there's actually there's a feeling that I can easily recall, and it's a feeling in your in the pit of my stomach that I've gone one step too far, and the only way out is to go one step further. Uh -huh. And there's the one step too far that you can turn around from. That one's no big deal. But the one step too far that you have to go one step further. That's the one where you really <laughs> feel like an idiot. And I can remember lots of times where that happened. And I've, lots of times I've just had to mitigate the sort of um, the fear. I remember I was traveling with some friends in Afghanistan, some friends, they were colleagues and friends. Uh, I was on assignment for Time Magazine and we were in Tarankot. And in the middle of the night, some C-130 American planes flew in in darkness and um, dropped something out of the cargo holds of the planes. And my journalist friends got very excited and they started storming towards what we knew was an American Special Forces base. And we had used security guards to get from Kandahar to Tarankot. And so they were with us in the back of this truck and they carried their Kalashnikovs with us. And I knew that this was a bad idea. I knew that we were going in too fast, too hard, 
but I knew that I couldn't talk these guys out of it. So I went into um, a mode of trying to reduce the danger by, by trying to get their attention and saying in a calm voice, if we drive at fast speed into an American Special Forces base with a pickup truck loaded with men with guns, they're going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> and the truck came to a halt. <laughs> and they ordered the uh, security guards out of the back of the truck, and then we proceeded forward. And actually, we probably shouldn't have gone at all, but that was one of those places where <sighs> I had to make a choice. I either mitigate the danger or nothing or nothing at all because it was too late to go backwards. I hadn't thought about that part of being a, a photographer or a journalist of any kind in, in a war zone, that so much of your safety is in the hands of the people that you happen, you didn't choose the people that you're around because they had your best interests at heart. You know, it's, that's, uh, that's terrifying. Yeah, I, I'm very curious why you invited me onto this podcast, actually, because I'm, you know, being a you have a very, the vibe of this podcast is so light, it's so, um, it's just so far. It's so humorous. Do we have a vibe yet? There's yeah, only been three yeah, episodes. Do. And then, you know, like you invite a journalist, and we're notorious for, like, crashing the party, and I mean, like, you know, everybody's having a good time, and then suddenly the journalist is like, do you know that American bombs are killing children in Yemen, and, mm -hmm. like, the party comes to a screeching halt? Yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to do that to your Podcast. That's no, that's why you're here. We have actually, honestly, the whole point of the podcast was to hang out with people that we like uh, uh, more frequently. Um, and so we're doing that, like, yeah, you know, it's it's all good. I'll throw the jokes in. You, I'll, I, I got I got a list here. We'll <laughs> yeah, you're, be doing, fine. you're doing so good. Yeah, you're doing that great. This is you're this, doing great. you've been so funny already. This, <laughs> it's been hysterical, really. Uh, so I, I well, this isn't a funny question. I, but I think we've had, I know the Afghanistan war is not over, but I think for many Americans, they've had space between that initial conflict um, and also the Iraq war. We've had like some time. And I wonder what stories we're telling ourselves about what happened um, versus how you feel things actually were. Do you feel well, like a dissonance there? Oh, I like in a million different ways. Um, well, just a couple of examples. For one thing, we always think that we we go into these conflicts as Americans and then we're gone and then that was the end of that history. And it's never like that. Oftentimes, like for example, the 1992 Iraq um, war, it's not like it stopped in 1993 or 1992. There were continuous bombings all through our next in, the second invasion. Um, but a lot, most Americans didn't even know that we were continuing to bomb Iraq for 12 years. Um, so yeah, there's there's a big disconnect there. Uh, also, the Americans are involved all over the world, you know, and a lot of our involvement is pretty sinister, but doesn't involve directly, you know, American troops. So, I would, you know, the war in Yemen is a great example yeah. where, you know, Saudi Arabia is is perpetrating like massive war crimes using American purchased weapons. And, you know, I would say that we have some complicity in that. But, you know, if you talk to the average person on the street, you know, they're not even aware of it. Right. So there's lots of ways that I feel like there are disconnects between what happens in the outside world and what happens here. Another example is uh, Syria. I think a lot of Americans think of that as a separate conflict from the Iraq war. But it's really just, in many ways, a spinoff from that conflict. Um, many of the people who were dismissed from the Iraqi army were really angry and pissed off and went into the insurgency and they, they led that insurgency out of Syria and then that 
organization, that political, military, right. paramilitary organization, turned into a resistance in Syria. So that's largely a conflict of, of our in, you know, initiation in some kind of way. But I don't think Americans make those connections, most Americans. I mean, anyone who reads does, of course. Um. Most Americans don't yeah. read. Yeah. <laughs> so, so watch the the PBS retrospective on your your career. Did you did you have a chance to watch the PBS retrospective on my career by any chance? Oh uh, no, I haven't seen no, that. I, I don't think I've seen mine either. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, uh, I don't have one. I've, I've seen most of mine, but not all of it in, in continuously. I actually participated in the editing of it, but I, I haven't seen the whole thing in one sitting. I've participated in the <laughs> editing of my own interview because I hated how, <laughs> how I presented myself that so much. So painful. Oh, that was awful. I'm glad. <laughs> that phase is over with. But uh, one thing, one of the, anyway, back to your career. Uh, one of the things that struck me was your, you talked a little bit about how um, how there's a kind of, in any given world event, there's a kind of narrative inertia um, to where if the story you're trying to tell doesn't fit what's already been told or like the the, the trajectory of the, the larger story that the, the news um, media has been telling it's much harder to get it picked up mm-hmm. um, which I thought was fascinating but it does that do you find that perspective or did you in those moments did that um, color how you chose the kind of stories you were trying to tell or did you just were you trying to be as as purely um, uh, that that's actually that's a really perceptive question I think um, I'm a very perceptive person <laughs> yeah, and I don't doubt it at all <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think that about you. Um, I'm just going to pour another drink over here. I, <clears throat> I, we I, can stop the interview now if we're at that. you want to just go home. That, that's all I needed out of this. So. <laughs> anyway, you were saying, Lauren? Um, I think it's, it's really perceptive because You know, the whiskey in the interview kind of like interferes with me remembering the actual question that I said was so perceptive. But wait a minute. I <laughs> no, it's actually true. Um, I, I, as a journalist, don't um, – I perceive myself as a part of a larger organism, the entire body of journalism. So when I go into a story, I don't say I need to get this side and that side. I look at the entire body of understanding, and I try to present a point of view – that is underrepresented. It's not my interest in balancing that with the overrepresented point of view. Uh, so I really see myself, you know, I think that's a, people expect journalists, uh, if they have a shallow understanding of it, to always give, quote, both sides of the story, end quote. But that's not never how I saw my role. I always saw myself as being someone who could present the underrepresented yeah. side of a story. Well, it's also so a false yeah, it totally dichotomy. motivated me. Yeah. There's not always two sides to a story. I mean, that, you know, that's that. There's a danger in looking through that lens all the time. So it, it's, I'm interested in what kind of alternate ways of looking at that kind of choice that there are. Yeah, and you know, and, and it puts you into some weird um, uh, positions because, like you said. Um, there, you know, there's a narrative. You often just hit that the I'm, boundary button. Oh, no, a, it's only because it's, deliberate it's no, it's beautiful. He's it's been a, like kind of caressing it. Uh, you know, do you know that your um, your listeners don't know this, but it's not actually a button. It's it's a bug. 
It's a paperweight. Yeah, it's a paperweight with a beautiful bug inside. And I can't resist putting my hand okay. on it. The shape is good. I have no boundaries. Sh- should so. we give you a separate safe word that when you when we actually have crossed a line you're uncomfortable? I, I'm pretty sure I can voice my Okay, my <laughs> fair content. enough. <laughs> All right, sorry I interrupted. Keep going. I was going to say that the narrative is, is, is um, I, I think it, when I got out and I was working as a journalist and I was working for larger news organizations, you could really kind of feel the wheels turning of what drives the story. And some of those things are on the surface. Like if a story has, um, has conflict, if a story is well photographed, um, there are a lot of things like that that can drive a story if, if they're a celebrity. But some of them are cultural. They're, they're part of our mythology of who we are as a people. So if we as Americans consider ourselves to be liberators and which of course there's you know this grain of truth because of world war ii and there's you know liberating the the concentration camps and all those kinds of things of our origin story that's you know, true yeah, yeah and the, the enlightenment mm-hmm. you know to a certain extent but that becomes a part of our um our narrative about ourselves to the point that editors can't see uh stories that are true that go counter to that narrative and those are the things that I didn't expect to, to discover, that when I was going and I was doing the underrepresented story as a way of balancing journalism, I realized that what I was doing was I was countering these giant mythologies about who we are hmm. as people, as Americans. Hmm. Oh. I told you I'd bring the party to a crash. No, no, this is great. This is so <laughs> what we signed up for. No, it's, it could be. It's great. Uh, so, oh, go ahead. You got something? <laughs> I got a lot of things. I just don't want to monopolize the question asking. So well, I don't know if this is going to be out of order, but I was going to ask about, you know, at some point during all that, you come home to the U.S. Yep. And what was that adjustment like? Was it what you expected? Was it not what you expected? Well, I mean, you know, so we mentioned earlier about this particular time when I was uh, threatened and um, right. Kale also, Kale offered, my wife uh, was also threatened by... She was, she was in the same theater? She was in the same vehicle. Oh, I had they, no <laughs> idea yeah. that that was the case. Yeah. I did not know he that. He definitely yeah. said my wife was in the car. I, I'm focused on, on impressing him with my question <laughs> asking, not as much as listening to what Their he's actually book, saying. Their book, Unembedded, is... There's four photographers. Yeah, she's a, she's a co-author. Yeah, so exactly. it's a wonderful. It's, can you still buy that book? Is that book still available? It's you can find used copies on okay. Amazon, but it's out of print. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I knew she. I knew she had the same general job and was in also adventurous scenarios. I didn't realize you were in the same vehicle in the same country. Right. We were like. often competing against each other. I mean, in like oh, a professional way. Like she would be on assignment for news, I, Newsweek, and I'd be on assignment for Time at the same <laughs> moment. I want to do a whole podcast just on that. That's amazing. That's like I, no, I have a like my wife terrible. and I were a creative team, and then we we got married in advertising, and then. Uh, we tried to stay working together, and we were like, no, this is 24 hours a day. is ridiculous. I can't do this. So then, then we split up and had different – we paired with different creative partners, and we're competing against each other, which was one of the most surreal and destructive uh, foundations for an early marriage that you could possibly have. And uh, it, we, had to, we had quickly had to realize that we needed boundaries on when, when and how we would compete, and we turned down a lot of projects where we would end up being head-to-head against each other. But, yeah, no, I, I want to hear I want to hear more about that. Yeah, I didn't realize we had that kind of parody as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what, like, seriously, what was that like? That's very interesting. So you were – she was working for, you said, Time? 
Uh, no, we, well, we were both freelancers, which okay. means that you get a, con- a short-term right. contract. So you get a client for a week or two weeks or a month, and then you move on to another client. And there were times when I would be working for Time Magazine. There's a literally a time when I was working for Time and she was working for Newsweek, and the very next week I was working for Newsweek and she was working for Time. <laughs> so, so it's very strange. And our editors back in New York, you know, they know each other as well, and they're also friends, and they're also sort of somewhat competitors, and so it becomes very kind of incestuous, the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, is there, have you worked through all of that since then, or is there stuff where, like, one of you really did get the better I mean, isn't that one of those one? marital things that, it's just like, always it's, it's going to be with you yeah, for a long time? <laughs> yes, that's fair. <laughs> and I'll to a certain degree, we're, like, keep reinventing in a new, in new um, theaters. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, I... I'm convinced, you, yeah, you guys, not to the extent you ha- there was chaos there, but I, I think you guys create a little bit of chaos in your lives here. Oh, so, we, you know, things like all you know, relationships, things always go a little sour here and there. And, and uh, uh, after, you know, that the experience of Iraq, we both had, I, I guess you would say, you know, um, stresses that moved our lives apart, and we separated for a little while. And there was a moment when I was visiting with Kale in Atlanta. We were living in separate cities at the time, and I visited her, and things were not going well. We'd been separated for a while. And then a tornado hit downtown Atlanta, and we got in the car, and we started driving towards the, the downtown, and the roads were all covered with trees and debris, so we had to drive up on the sidewalk, and there were cops, and so we had to go down a side street to get around them, and immediately we were like, rebonded. <laughs> Recapturing <laughs> the magic of the early if days. There were a mo- if I could pinpoint a moment where things turned in our relationship and we came back together, it was that moment the, where we penetrated the city, <laughs> Atlanta, amazing. in the middle of a tornado. So what is that like now? I mean, you don't get much opportunity for that sort of. I mean, you have a daughter uh, who's pretty young. I mean, it's like the the thought of you know being back in the middle of some sort of life threatening action is probably pretty distant, or is it not? I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. There, would you go back to? Uh, well, the daughter complicates yeah, things. I would think yeah, so. it, it definitely complicates things in ways that I, I w- didn't even predict because I worked with people who had children and, and they would come and they would work and then they'd go home to their children. And I don't judge those people. There's, I totally get that. Like, I think all parents should do the things that, you know, they feel that they need to do and so that their their children uh, can see, could see what that's like. It's a good role modeling to a certain extent. Um I mean, but it's definitely a risky job. You know, we've, the longer I did it, the more colleagues of mine I saw get injured or killed. And I used to think that I was just smarter than my colleagues in surviving. And then the more I got, came to understand, I just realized I was luckier than some of them. Um, and at this point, you know, I'm not, I just don't want to take that kind of risk while my daughter's so young. I can imagine yet another, at another time where, you know, I might do that kind of work again. Maybe not in the same way that I did it before. Okay. Hmm. Uh, from so just to revisit, like the the Iraq. I mean, I feel ridiculous saying this to someone who actually lived through a piece of it, but the Iraq War for me was like a really challenging, emotional, personal time. Just politically, I, I mean, I, I like I, I have some pretty firmly embedded rage in my heart over 
uh, the things that were done allegedly to protect me during that time. So I just, as on a petty level, I would like to know from somebody who was on the ground, who was the worst human being American on the ground in Iraq? Was it Rick Sanchez, Paul Bremer, or Tommy Franks? Which of those three? Uh, I'm going to go with Bremer. Yes! Yes! I was hoping that was the answer. I hate that guy so much. So much. And, you know, it's no comment on, on the state of his soul or his, you know. <laughs> I, it is, it is. It, it could be. I would just say that his, the decisions that he made were, um, gave us this, the war in Syria. I would say, yeah. I would go that far. Can y'all tell everybody who that is? Just so he was he was essentially know. the viceroy. I like I like that word. The That's viceroy, the American viceroy. It has government. a little like a slime layer over the word itself. <laughs> That's fitting. He is the uh, American civilian who was installed to be the you know the acting governor of Iraq after the U.S. invasion, and he made one idiotic, ill-advised decision that changed the whole course of what happened to Iraq after the invasion, which, by, by the way, by itself, was, a was disastrous choice. enough. I, was pick, I just wanted somebody that was there, that was the villain. But yes, the people yeah. that were back home responsible for it, obviously, are bigger villains. But. And there are many things that Bremer did wrong. The, the principal one is that he disbanded the Iraqi army, which was huge. And, and by huge, I don't mean it was powerful. I just mean there were a lot of people in it. And those people depended on those paychecks uh, so that they didn't have to do other things. And without a paycheck, they, but with the guns that they own and the skills that they have, what are they going to do? They're going to go to whoever else is going to support them or whatever other insurgent activity mm-hmm. is going to bring back the power that they once had. Yeah. And so he could, he did, that was totally unnecessary. There were many people who advised him against it. And disbanding the entire Iraqi army is probably what gave us the conflict in Syria. Yeah. And then the other big idiotic decision he made was the, uh, what was uh, uh, Saddam's political party called? The Ba'ath Party. Yeah, the Ba'ath Party. The, the refusal to hire anybody that was affiliated with the Ba'ath Party in the inner workings of the government and then daily life. Right, the which was de-bathification. The exact, yeah, the de-bathification, <laughs> which was the exact opposite of rebuilding Germany in po- post-World War II. Uh, I mean, just incredibly boneheaded. I mean, in the core of the Ba'ath Party were some pretty rotten people. I mean, Saddam Hussein is definitely not uh, anyone anyone that we owe any respect to at all. But if you were working as the principal of a school, of course, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. So not because you believe in the ideals of the Ba'ath Party, but because you want to right. be the principal of a school and right. teach children. Or the head of a public transit agency exactly. that can't work for you. Yeah. Or the manager of a hospital. Yeah. It's not because you, you believe in the Ba'ath Party. It's because you want, don't want people to die of appendicitis. Yeah. And those are the people who can't get a job again. I mean, that also very Everybody idiotic. qualified to run the country was disqualified with that single yes. decision. Yeah. So some terrible decisions. But I mean, the origin of, you know, it all goes back to the original sin of the invasion in the first place. Yeah, Um, for sure. Yeah. But I wondered what it was like for people who were here, because I I actually wasn't living in, I mean, I, I went to Iraq when Saddam was in power, but I went there from my home in Serbia. So I wasn't really in touch with what was happening in the United States. And I always wondered how it could happen, you know, how... But, you know, of course, now I look around in the, yeah. the weirdness and I'm like, well, yeah. how can we well, let this happen? Well, that answers that question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. I was in college. And so that was, a, I mean, 
I don't know, college is such a strange time in which things feel really important, but you're also not, you're removed from the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any like deep commentary here. Just no, but an interesting time to be in school. Well, right, and you're like you're wondering why you're in college. I'm I'm speaking for you, trying to cycle. I'm yeah, sorry. please. My do. dad is not only a pastor but a psychologist, and some of the things are embedded in me, and I can't help but analyze people as they speak. But it seems like being in college, when something momentous like that is going on, you have to wonder, okay, how much of what I feel about this is because of what's actually happening or how much of it is because the entire world around me is new and weird and different. Yeah, and I also think, you know, because of who serves in the military now compared to, you know, 50 years ago, it's it there's this just there's this interesting separation from That's interesting. So you're saying that because there's no longer a draft, then it makes it harder to criticize bad decisions that the military might make. No, you know, I... This but is, in a minute, let's pretend she did so you can respond to that because mm-hmm. it sounds like you have something interesting to this say. This is going to maybe also sound silly, but after I w- watched Ken Burns's Vietnam War documentary, like that was a period of time I learned nothing about when I was in school. Um, and mostly high school because I studied biology and so I didn't take very many like American history classes um and up until then I just hadn't really understood like I would probably identify more with the anti-war movement but I I feel like I at least got a glimpse into how people that were on the other side felt and why Mm -hmm. and and how those two sides didn't talk to each other and how they were um antagonizing each other and so then I think about Iraq and the same thing, um, but but it's just a different situation because there's no draft, um, and so that like I didn't know anyone that was serving, and so like lo- like closely I do now actually I have a friend he was an army ranger um, in Iraq but or uh, Afghanistan Ashley oh, yeah I, I, I don't um, remember where he was honestly. Anyway, so, you know, at the time, I think it was, no, at the time it was very easy for me to like, no, this was stupid. I mean, I still feel, I still feel like we should never have done it. And it was, it was awful. Um, And one of the worst legacies of an administration filled with bad legacies. But um, I also didn't have a whole lot of people in my life to provide any other context for that, you know, at school or, or even at home. So. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting. The the draft issue, I think, is re- <clears throat> pardon me. I think the draft issue is a really interesting sort of line of demarcation, because whereas before the draft applied to everybody, and in a certain sense that gives everybody a right to complain and to protest, whereas um, you know yeah. at post draft, it's still a form of conscription, but it's it's a conscription that's fueled by ideology and economic opportunity. It's a, there are different things, and so you can identify the kinds of people who might be in the situation where they would be serving in an army whose decisions they can't control and would be sent off into a war that's not good for them, and you can feel a certain sympathy for them, but. Also, they're in a way that uh, you may not feel like you have the same right to speak for them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what I thought you were saying. And I think to a certain extent you were. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not. <laughs> maybe I'm reading more into it than just, what you said. Just say yes. Say. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's also a very good chance that what I said made no sense. And so, it, you know. No, it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it was also very funny. 
<laughs> That's an important part of what we're doing here today, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, so you've been you've been on the ground in multiple civil wars, uh, and in the in the lead up to multiple civil wars. Mm-hmm. How do I? I'm not exactly sure how I want to ask this, but uh, emotionally, was there a thread? It, different cultures in those kind of conflicts was there a cultural or emotional thread that united all of all of those different ones? I mean, um, is there anything? I mean, even. What I'm getting at, I think, is is the state of our own country these days. Is that, that may be a stretch, but um, and yeah, I I don't know if I have the kind of wisdom that can solve the problems that we're facing today. I'm not asking <laughs> you to solve it. I'm just saying, is there does the vibe? Does there a similarity? Well, I'll I'll just back up and take it from a different uh, point. I I learned a lot about the United States by living in Serbia okay. in post more Bosnia. I mean, post Bosnia and more Serbia, and uh, there was a time when Milosevic was in power. Um, and this is I, before I lived there, but I was visiting Serbia and covering uh, events there. And uh, I saw like how a civil war could start and how what I hated. Let me back up one step further. What I hated was all the people who were writing about Bosnia and uh, Yugoslavia and the breakup. They wrote about it as if it were some kind of inevitable thing that was based on history and ancient hatreds. Mm-hmm. And I suspected that was bullshit. Yeah. But I just didn't, you know, like, where does it come from then? Um, and then I visited Serbia. And in living in a country like that, where everything's sort of scaled down and see everything's like 10 years behind the United States, it gives you an opportunity to see the United States in a different way. And here's what I observed. Uh, when Milosevic was in power, they had local elections in Belgrade. The elections, Milosevic just nullified. He said, we don't like the results because he didn't vote for our party, so no more elections. Wiped his hands of it. So people in Belgrade protested. And the people who had voted for the Democratic Party were out in the streets every day in the middle of the winter. 200,000 people a day were out in the middle of the streets when it was freezing cold. And they would all go to Terrazia Square at the same time. I don't remember the precise time. Let's say 2 o'clock. Um, so Milosevic decides that he wants to break up the protest. It's, um, so he controls state media. Everybody outside of the country doesn't know what's going on, but he makes an announcement that there will be a counter-protest at 2 o'clock on a given day. Uh, they had sent buses down to factories. People got the day off of work. They loaded onto the bus and they drove toward Belgrade. Kale and I went outside of Belgrade. Um, we were working together at that time. I'm giving you the impression that we always work together, which is not true. We happened to be working together at that time. We stood on the highway and flagged down one of those buses and got on. The people on the bus were like, you know, village people and not the, you know, the YMCA village people, Mm. you know, not the Indian and the cop, but like villagers. Native American. Yeah. who (laughs) Indigenous person. (laughs) Who had. We're a woke podcast. Yeah. I I heard that from the last podcast. He really did. He really did do his homework. I don't. I'm not. You're not woke? Mm -mm. Okay. I won't claim that word. I respect you for that. Yep. So the people on this bus were people who I'd seen before in villages all over uh, Eastern Europe. They were had bologna sandwiches that they shared with us. They're drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning. Do y'all like bologna? Side note. Nope. 
No, 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 no. It's disgusting. I like bologna. Oh no, it's that's fine. Horrible. That's fine. Okay, keep going. Anyway, they they were they were drinking like uh, moonshine at ten o'clock in the morning. They shared that with us. They shared the sandwiches. They were sweet people. And I asked them, "Why are you going?" They said, "Well, because there's lawlessness in the streets of Belgrade." That's all they knew. They had no idea oh, about wow. the elections. They had in, no idea that Melissa caravan. They had no idea that they had been canceled by uh, that they had been nullified oh. by Milosevic. All they knew that there were hooligans in the street. And they were there to like stand up for law oh, and order. That's the most depressing and these are familiar they're thing really ever. sweet people sharing their sandwiches, and and they're probably literally related to the people in Belgrade, but they just have they have totally different news sources. Uh, in Belgrade, you had Radio B ninety two, which was a, a a pirate radio that everybody could pick up, and hmm. but it only broadcast to Belgrade. Outside of Belgrade, it was only. It was only Fox TV. I'm sorry. It was only state TV. <laughs> <laughs> so keeping it light. <laughs> so we came in on the bus with these people, and there is a police cordon that escorts them into uh, right about four blocks away from Terrazia Square. And then the police escort disappears. These people, they've all been supplied uh, posters with Milosevic's face on it, on a stick. And they're walking in the middle of Belgrade into a local election. And people from their windows are looking out saying, what the hell are you doing here in our election? So somebody throws a bottle. Somebody grabs a Milosevic sign. Now this person's holding a stick. And somebody throws a punch, somebody swings a stick, and it just turns into a riot. And these people who had no reason to fight each other, they were probably, as I said, literally related, are now having an all-out, you know, urban warfare. Yeah, and they take those stories back to their communities exactly. and share them. Oh, and, you know, Milosevic yeah. then, you know, sends in the police. They separate it. They beat the crap out of the students who'd come into the streets. They escort them into Terrazia Square. Uh, by then, night falls and a little snow flurried, and they turned on literal Klieg lights. I know, what, I know, <laughs> you know what those are. Like, literal Klieg lights get turned on, and snow flurries being lit, and they're playing this patriotic music. Oh. Milosevic takes the stage, and I'm like... This is amazing. One guy can put his finger on the button and he can ignite a civil conflict. And that's, you know, so civil conflict is not really about what we have against each other. It's about how politicians manipulate us against each other. And I'm like physically sick right now because of how not far-fetched that is to imagine happening in our country right now. Although I will say if... uh, if Trump were as ever as deft as that to like, with the stagecraft, <laughs> like that would that would I find that slightly heartening. On That's a, on the advertiser. You. <laughs> uh, no, we are super lucky. He's as dumb as he is. Yeah, I, I will it say. could be so much worse. You're uh, right. That makes You're me right. think, though. But about isn't how he kind of an idiot savant, though? Yes, yes. Um, no doubt. That's yes. the problem. No. Out. You know, yeah. Trump didn't make America. America made Trump. Mm-hmm. Yes, abs- I, I've had a, this discussion with my mom because we, you know, after the election, she was very upset, and uh, you know, the whole question of like, how how did this happen? And she thinks Trump made people this way, and I was like, uh, uh-uh. no, we've been this like, way. Like, you know, a fish needs water to swim in, and mm-hmm. so you know, there's a whole bunch of people that have to move in a certain direction. Um, 
for that to happen. I'm, re- I'm really glad that story landed because it's such a personal experience to me. Like it had, it gave me goosebumps. We're here to make and each could, other feel better. I could see you, re- I could see you reacting to it in a, in a similar kind of way. Like oh. it's, it's really, it's an incredible how, because it, it's really, it's a bit of advertising as well. Oh, no doubt. And, and I mean, in the core of it being that, you know, you take an imaginary experience and you make it something real and now it's a real experience and that's profound and that's something that you can oh. never like undo. And the best advertising, and I say best with quotes around it, I'm sorry, Matt. No, please. I, <laughs> oh, I, if it's I, not best advertising, yeah, it's exactly that. I feel horrible about the way I <laughs> yeah, make Yeah, definitely make him feel bad about his job. Do it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's kind of like how you said you used to think you were smarter than other journalists, yeah. and then you realized you were lucky. Right. You know, three years ago, I would have said, oh, well, we're smarter than that. But I think we just have been lucky. Yeah, yeah, so. I get it. Um, so let's, oh, we're still good. We got okay. the lights on. We're fine. Okay. Let's hypothetically. <clears throat> so we've already established that if you, if you needed to go back into a war zone, uh, for your job, you, you wouldn't necessarily rule it out, but there would be some difficult decisions to make given your, your family situation. So let's, let's bring it a little host closer to home. Let's, let's say hypothetically you were asked to go in bed with, uh, an LA street racing crew. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> where, where there's there there might be a chance that some of them are involved in some sort of illicit, um, uh, say, crime syndicate. You know, maybe there's there's rumors that they're knocking up um, shipment. You know, trucking stuff and like reselling the the. Uh, the the stuff you know the shipments um, and then there's also a chance that one of them unbeknownst to you or anyone specifically which one is a fed first of all would you take that job if you were hired to go in bed and like just document photojournalistically um, would and, you take it and somebody's like set up the inside contact so there's an insider who's yeah. there who's gonna oh gosh yeah, yeah. you take heck, it heck yeah okay so how do you how do you earn their trust what do you do to uh, embed yourself. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, the thing I studied in college was anthropology, and I studied ethnography. And that's where I learned how to be a journalist, was sitting down and doing the things that people do. And whatever you, it is... Like, that, unpack that. I don't, I don't follow. It sounds really interesting. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not on the same page yet. I mean, basically, like, there's a technique in anthropology when you gain someone's trust through participant observation. Okay. And it also enhances the quality of what you write in an ethnography okay. because you understand it better. So you're saying the first thing you'd do is you'd go get, like, a 69 charger and super, supercharge it yourself? Is that... And then you'd race. Yeah, well, if I could afford it, sure. But, you know, probably otherwise I would just go and I would, you know, ride side car as someone raced um, I would learn okay. the mechanics when I when I, I did do an embed with an American military uh, medevac crew and they had they gave me a safety briefing before we started this uh, the whole embed and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't look at Liz's face right She's now shaking her head. <laughs> I, I can't tell whether this is delight or disgust I can't tell I'm, I'm registering keep going but please I, part of me wants a camera just, just trained on your face through this whole conversation she's like hey, oh my going. god that blowhard's out of the game no 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 this is, well yeah Matt uh, yes that's definitely uh, anyway keep going keep going keep going so, so I embedded with a, a medevac crew and before they let you embed 
they're very skeptical. You know, like you're a journalist, you're a civilian, you're soft. And they, they gave me a, a safety training and they went through all their um, procedures and things like that. And then I went on several missions with them. And on one mission, they were going through their checklist and I noticed that they missed something in the checklist. And I said, you forgot the gust lock. And they were just about to hit the ignition on the on the helicopter propeller. And the gust lock is a mechanical device that reaches up and grabs the propeller so that a gust of wind won't blow it around. And if you turn on the engine and start the start it while the gust lock is engaged, you know, you do a good job of like screwing up a $6 million machine. <laughs> and the whole crew came to a halt. They stopped. They had like the blood drained from their faces. And uh, I reached up and I pulled the gust lock. Whoa! And I was golden from there that on. That is <laughs> They would let me do anything I wanted. They wouldn't let That's me fly awesome. the helicopter if that I asked That is badass. <laughs> that is amazing. And I can't help but wonder if you're using the same ethnography tactic on us right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I talked to you about the Zoom recording. Yeah, did you, you did. notice that? Right at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Came I in? did. Uh -huh. yeah, I'm sorry. It's uh, we are being played so that we will present you in the best possible light. Yeah. So you know that was just an elaborate Fast and Furious... Oh, set up. I do. See, that's the thing. So this is why we're not a six, Liz. Uh, no, I, I actually think it's a very, he's like dancing around it. <laughs> so I just needed to make that, that clear to you. Okay. Which is why her face was like, like, she knew I was making a Fast and the Furious joke. Yeah. He I thought you did too, but... Uh, he no, also no. tried to make this joke joke last week but the mic died yeah Aww. so i had to recreate it somehow so, so thank you for helping him fill that mm -hmm. that was perfect it was so, it went so much better than i could oh have. yeah your story was so much better <laughs> than the joke yeah it was great oh. see lots of those things like if we if we were six friends i would have known that joke i would have gotten the joke but see because i don't know that then you know it's fine that, we, yeah. and we haven't I mean, it, no, I'm putting it on me, Liz. It's oh, on me. I okay. don't. I don't know I just, the Fast and Furious part of you. It. It's also. I mean, I like. Yes, it's a part of me, but like, it doesn't define me. Okay. Uh, Still, I'm gonna make an effort. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to make it define you. That's my. That's my agenda for the. That's fine too. Are you Are you ready? What are we What are we transitioning to? Um, so we're gonna do. I brought a little game. Oh, okay. Okay. You want to do that? Yeah, let's and do it. And then we'll go back to talking about some of the other serious stuff, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I came up with a game. Your name is Thorn. So we came up with a game called Game of Thorns. By we, we mean Liz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to ask you questions that have that are all related to the word thorn. Okay. And you're going to see... If you can answer them. This is like my my elementary school nightmare. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, did you get made fun of? I think your I think your name is wonderful. Yeah, I would have thought that would have been like uh, some sort of uh, inoculation against teasing rather than an invitation for it. Thorn is my mother's maiden name, and if I ever had a son, I actually Thorn is the only name I've ever thought of that I would like to name my child. Is there any positive quality in either of you that's completely immune from teasing? No. Of course not. No. You know, okay. for you know, for an eight-year-old, this is a very like, penetrating question. Like a wicked little kid, they'll yeah. find a way. That's true. They'll find a way. It's true. Well, maybe we're gonna like heal that spot. right now. Okay. We're gonna fix it. Okay. Let's dig in. Okay. Right. So, which of these is not an actual town? Thornberry, Texas, Fort Thorn, New Mexico. Or Thorncrest, Massachusetts. I'm gonna go with Fort Thorn because that's just like ridiculous to say. 
who would name a Fort Thorne? Fort, and just and like even now, I feel like I'm I'm going to swallow the microphone when I say it. You are wrong. Okay. The answer is Thorncrest, Massachusetts. No, who's Fort, the journalist now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's up and up for debate. Um, also, I was thinking if you don't know the answer, we'll like we'll see if Matt can. I'm pretty it, sure but, I don't know any of the answers, okay. but I'm happy to pass it off to Matt. So, what Game of Thrones character is nicknamed Queen Queen of Thorns? So this is another area of my life. You know, you're going to be appalled. I have never, ever seen Game of Thrones. I'm not appalled at all. I watched the first season, and then I skipped a whole bunch of them, and then I just showed back up. You didn't like, tell me this. I remember asking you specifically whether I should power through because I was so bored in the first season. I mean, And Brian I feel like you it. were one of the people that was like, no, 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 you got to. I lied. I, I feel betrayed. Sorry. Although I'm glad I stuck with it because it does kind of come around. Oh, see, then you're welcome. But I still feel betrayed. Uh, okay, so which Game of Thrones character is nicknamed Queen of Thorns? If you don't know, you can see if Matt can answer. It's mm-hmm. the it's the what's your face? Um, the I'm shit with names. It's uh, the one that married um, the other, the blonde, the young blonde douche, uh, and then died in the in the explosion thing. So you are close. I believe is her mom. I'm pretty well, sure none of those were spoilers. I actually didn't look it up. I'm just going with what Brian said, but he said it's Lady Elena, so her grandmother. Oh yeah, the grandmother. There you go. So the lady that I'm about to spoil something. I knew so the if house. you if you haven't seen this episode, you should you should fast forward for 30 seconds. But, I'm pretty sure I'm so far um, lost that I'll never find so my way back there again. So she killed herself by taking poison, and then gave this big speech. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She basically that gave. Was a, that was a great scene. Um, what's his face? The middle finger. The class, the cast, you have to, I'm thinking of the actor's and, name. Uh, the As Lannister. Was dying. The Lannister. Yeah, like she gave him this big speech. Told him everything she'd done and then was like, by the way, I already poisoned myself and I'll be dead soon. Fuck off. Oh, that seems like a win for him. I mean, it was a pretty great exit for her. It was. It was fitting. Um, okay. Who gave Jesus the crown of thorns? <gasps> I, it's multiple choice. Um, wait, wait, I don't think he needs a, this is a pastor's okay. kid here. I, right. I totally need it. The crown of thorns? Yeah. Man, so, we must have had I'm gonna different get, kind I'm going to go with Pontius Pilate. Well, so... Wow, we so, have so, very so, different pastor dads. So, you didn't even have to play along for the first 10 years? <laughs> like, you didn't, like, what, how many times did they make you read the Bible? My, my, my father is more like a practicing agnostic. Oh, He's we got to talk about this. <laughs> this is the next topic after the game is over. So, let me, let me give you a multiple choice. And I think you I'm gonna, should I'm gonna cover my ears the lines here. I don't say, need the multiple yeah, choice. You okay. didn't, la, you la, did la, not la, answer right. correctly. All right. Um, so A, Pontius Pilate. Oh. B, Judas Iscariot. Definitely C, not. C, the soldiers. Or D, the crowd. Uh, I'm going to go with the crowd. Matt, what's the right answer? It's the soldiers. And the soldiers. Oh, well, that was doubly wrong. This is a humiliating game. <laughs> All right, name the chapel. But thank you for the whiskey. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Uh, name the chapel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, designed by architect E. Faye Jones. Eureka Springs. I've actually it is a very famous chapel. It's like got the word crystal in it or something like that. No, the, that's the art museum that's in Benville, ah, that's Crystal true. Bridges. Okay. Uh, do I get a multiple choice? No. All right. What do you, do you know, Matt? I was just going to guess the Thorn Chapel, but. Uh, You're very close. Because, yeah, the word thorn wasn't in the question. Oh, so. I forgot about that. <laughs> See, I, I totally forgot the pretext of the game. 
Uh, so the answer is Thorn Crown, the Thorn, Thorn Crown, Crown Chapel. Chapel. It's yeah. really beautiful, and if yeah. you're ever okay. that way, you should definitely go visit. Okay. You can see why I'm not on game shows for a living. Um, okay, complete the song is lyric. Anyone on game shows for a living uh, apart from who's the host? on? Uh, Ken, uh, Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings. Oh yeah. Came close. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He came close. Yeah. All right. So complete the song lyric. Just like every night has its dawn. Just like every cowboy sings his sad, sad song. Well, this one really applies to me because no. my daughter's name is Rosalie. So, <gasps> and every rose has its, has its Was form. that deliberate? Yeah, they no, did it. No, it was not deliberate. <laughs> In fact, I, I, this sounds stupid, but I didn't even realize it until like she was several months old. Well, that's another thing we have in common because uh, my two daughters' names are Vivian and June, which I found out after the f- and we and, and we considered naming our son, very deliberately considered naming our son Johnny, who's, who we settled on Colin. But it turns out that Vivian and June are the two wives of Johnny Cash. Oh. And we had no idea. So anyway, (laughs) there you go. Yeah, and how long did it take you to figure that out? I mean, years. Yeah. Many, many years. Yeah, so the answer there was Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. By Poison, Poison, a song that I covered in my hair metal cover band back in the day. What was the band called? Stan Halen. It It was an office band. We named ourselves after our boss, Stan Richards. Okay, last question. This one's long. But um, what I did is I went on Amazon and I looked up like little synopses of plots of fiction books that it had a character whose name was Thorn. So I'm going to read three. Uh, One of them is made up. So you need to figure out which one is the made up one. Do you have a heart out at any point? Because we could just keep this going for a few more hours. I'm good. Uh, All All right, first one. Uh, Flynn Moss, Thorne's newly discovered son, has naively fallen in with an ELF cell in Miami, which has its sights on Turkey Point, the largest nuclear power plant in the state. This ELF group has concocted a nonviolent plan to shut down the nuke plant nearby. But unbeknownst, unbeknownst to some in the group, there are other members with far more violent scheme in mind. They want to cause a radioactive catastrophe rival- rivaling Chernobyl. With a growing sense of dread about the group's true intentions, Flynn summons Thorn to help him escape from Prince Key, the remote island where the ELF group is camped. Unable to refuse this son he barely knows, Thorn heads off to Prince Key and quickly reaches a frightening realization. There is only one way to save his son's life. He must join with the eco-terrorists and help them complete their deadly mission. So this is perfect example of he went one step too far and you got it to to get out. You got to go through. That's right. You got to go further. Okay. So that was the first one. Number one. Number two, Evelyn Thorne has always been a loner. But when her mom's new job drags her away from the comfortably gloomy town of Otter Rock, Oregon, she retreats even further into her own private world. The only place she can even breathe in sunny San Diego is the tattered page a bookstore as notable for its chai lattes as it is for its cloaked and introverted patrons. One of those patrons happens to be the very same master seer mentioned in the ornately bound work of fiction that just happens to fall quite literally into Evelyn's lap one crisp autumn afternoon. The more she reads, the more she finds the same fictional world encroaching on her own life. Until one day, a boy harboring limitless evil behind his enchanting eyes buys her a latte and asks if he can borrow the book. 
Somehow Evelyn knows to decline, setting in motion a grand adventure into the hidden world of magic casters and sinister forces. Under Master Seer Assam's guidance, Evelyn begins to awaken a power she always suspected was within. As soon as she finds herself soon sorry, soon she finds herself harnessing that power to protect and preserve the very fabric of existence in the face of a terrifying resistance led by a boy with enchanting eyes. So only one of these is false. Two of these are true. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the last one, Rosalind Thorne has slowly but assuredly gained a reputation as a useful woman by helping respectable women out of their less than respectable predicaments. Desperate Margaret Seymour is with child and her husband is receiving poisoned letters that imply that her condition is the result of an affair with the notorious actor Fletcher Cavendish. Margaret asks Rosalind asks Rosalind to find out who is behind the scurrilous letters, but before she can make any progress, Cavendish is found dead, stabbed through the heart. Suddenly, Rosalind is plunged into the middle of one of the most sensational murder trials London has ever seen, and her client's husband is the prime suspect. With the help of the charming Adam Harkness, she must drop the curtain on this fatal drama before any more lives are ruined. I, before he answers, i got to step in and, and say two things. One is that any YA book that doesn't include a character named Thorne is missing the mark because that was all enchanting from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I know, I'm going to also refer to you. I, I know which one I think is the false one. Do okay. you know which one you think is the false I, one? I have a hunch. All right, so I'm, I'll go first. But, but I, the last one had Rosalind in, in Rosalind and Thorne and Rosalind Thorne thing, which is very close to Rosalie. There are two things. Okay. Number one is the second. I'm assuming that the, the the false one is written by Liz. The second one had the word seer in it, and I can't think of Liz including the term seer. Although I could be wrong. She's she has her devious like side. I like this thought process. Uh, the third one was very well written, and I think could very well have been written by Liz, who is a very good writer. And uh, so I'm going to say that the third one, because it is written more clearly than the first one is the false one. What do you think? Um, I actually know the answer. This is the one I know the answer to, so I'm not going to say. I'm going to let I'm going to let Liz reveal. Yeah, so what happened was I wrote a, a synopsis and then I handed it to Matt to punch it up. <laughs> um, so the one that is not true that we wrote together is the second one. <gasps> About Evelyn Thorne. Seer. And being the a seer. That was my word. That was I wrote word. that. That was See, word. I told you, you're diabolical. You, you that's true. I was just trying I, to channel I my. That that's the thing that could. I trying to it channel all. my YA yeah. mystical Good work. novel. That was yeah. fun. Yeah. Good, uh, so, how many did he end up getting right out of all of those questions? Like, I think zero. I think no, zero. no, no. You, sure. got, you got the. Oh, no. Song. Every rose has its thorn. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You did get that one, yeah. right? And that was it. It's like a consolation prize, it is. really. Yeah. Um, okay. That's the kind of test score where you need to mm-hmm. talk to the student and say, hey, like, what's up? What's going on with your headspace? And the student's like, you know, I'm not really into this class. Is there anything I need to know? <laughs> is that what your students say? Uh, I've had students tell me that. My students, it's usually like a very awful, sad story about like outside circumstances. Yeah. Thorne doesn't get those stories ever. Or, um, they'll, or they'll just straight up be like, yeah, miss, I didn't study. So. 
Yeah, anyway. I mean, there's a there's a wide range. I mean, for the, for the most part, I love my students. I did have one student, I've, I think I've told you this before, who on the first day of class raised her hand and said, what is the least amount of work I can do and still get an A? <laughs> an A. <laughs> uh, that's the student after my own heart, I gotta say. That I know, was my, it's like, that it's was like, my life strategy right it's there. It's Donald Trumpian levels of honesty, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. Donald Trump wouldn't <laughs> wait, even wait, try wait. to make an A. No way. That dude knew he that's could get away time. with a C. He, no, Donald Trump would get a C and tell himself he got an A. <laughs> that's what Donald Trump would do. Donald Trump, I need to clarify, you meant Donald Trumpian levels of inadvertent honesty. I mean, well, it could be, yeah, I guess so. Because it's the first time I've heard the word honesty. No, yeah, I'm come on. Trump, apart yeah. from my highly, highly, no, extremely right conference the other day. The, yeah. the other day, he was in the press conference, he said, well, from here through the rest of my presidency, anything that goes wrong, I'm going to blame it on the Congress. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that we is, all know right. that, right? We knew that ahead we knew of that I could have told you, yeah, beforehand. Yeah, That's we knew good. that about previous presidents, <laughs> but none of them were, came out and said it. It. And the that's day where after I, the election. That's yeah. Donald Trumpian honesty yeah, okay, right there. Well, I mean, he Good has point. the amazing ability to say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and like nothing happens. Yeah. Well, in, in any way no that seems like, yeah, that no tangible consequences. Yeah. Uh, I think that takes us nicely into talking about present day. Okay. Don't you? Yeah, absolutely. We spent some time talking about kind of where you've been in the past. And um, I don't know how much you're comfortable talking about kind of the current state of journalism and the media in the Trump era. Um, Do you, is one of your career goals to be murdered by the the Saudi king? (laughs) Yeah. 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 That was an interjection. I think that's an easy no. No, Okay, just that. I mean... Edward R. Morrow Award. I mean, which is which is more? Crow? It does elevate the quality of his, his work. I mean, I you know, this is someone who wrote for the Washington Post, obviously, and yeah. and so had an inside look at you know the Saudi regime and had a valuable perspective. That said, you know, I wouldn't say and. Don't get me wrong, like the murder of any journalist is a terrible thing or if any human is a terrible thing. But I mean, I didn't think I like that caveat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not pro murder. <laughs> I think that I don't the, even know where you're going. The quality <laughs> of his of of his journalism. Oh, my God. This is the cattiest thing we've had happen in this podcast so far. Yes. <laughs> I don't know anything about this guy as a journalist, but I yeah, love in that we pulled this out is going to be evaluated more positively. But he I mean, he was really an in. <laughs> Insider to the Saudi family and okay. contributed valuably to the you know the, the discourse on Saudi politics. Okay, wait, wait. sorry, I, but I, I you know that's not this whole that topic. is not the same thing as let's say like a Marie Colvin you know for the you know they just had this movie about Marie Colvin that came out the uh, the reporter. I mean that's a very different genre, or very different breed of journalist okay. than Khashoggi. He's more like a celebrity journalist in some kind of way. Oh, interesting. All I just wonder, what do you think about his murder? Uh, what is it that like stuck and has caused? Yeah, the, that is because I mean, it's not like the Saudi it's entirely, regime. Are, it's are entirely kittens. the politics of Turkey. It's because the president of Turkey decided to make this an issue. The president of Turkey very well could have ignored it, and for all we know, this thing happens, uh, you know, all far more frequently. Sure. And because it gets ignored, we don't know about it. But because of the particular politics of Turkey, mm-hmm. then he decided this is a lever that he could use to get what he wants. Don't ask me what that is. <laughs> Do you think uh, I? I mean, I know the work of a journalist hasn't changed, but like, what do you think? I don't know. How do you feel about what's happening 
in our country in terms of the media landscape, how the media responds to Trump. Um, like, what do you think journalists ought to be doing? You know, I don't know. That's well, a, like five million questions. But you know, in terms of journalism, now you're outside of my wheelhouse. So like, I don't have any more valuable insights than you do. Uh, when it comes to like American political reporting, but I think you know it's it's depressing and it's sad. Um, it's sad, <laughs> as Donald Trump would say. In all caps. I mean, the, the, like the whole fake news thing, just the like the idiocy of that phrase and the way that it's like grammatically questionable, like eighty percent of the time that it's used, and you know that's just depressing. Mm-hmm. To, to you know, just have the level of our discourse be, to be reduced to these like bisyllabic. <laughs> kinds of kinds of expressions. Does it come up in the work you do with your students in in teaching, or is it, is it really more like there's processes and methods, and it's not really about what's happening? Journalism right school now. enrollments are up. People people look at what's happening happening around them. You know, I, you know, this is a vast overgeneralization, of course, but I think a lot of uh, young students are looking at what's happening around them, and they see good journalism as an antidote to um, the confusion about what's real. Is, is that true or are you just saying that to make us feel better? That the enrollments are up? That's you definitely that true. people are seeing that. Oh, really? Both, all of the above. Yeah, yeah all of the above is wow, true. And that's I, super and cool. Like my students, I have great hope for the future in lots of different ways. Like my... Well, then talk, one know, of my questions is I, about... I hate the way millennials get slagged on because, you know, like Same. my my classes are full of millennials. This is the and biggest smile I've so, ever seen so, on Liz's face. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm a millennial. It's like there were... Some of them, it's like they were born wise. Like the, a lot of the things that I had to learn about the world over many hard-earned years, mm-hmm. they, they came in just understanding. Like, the, the tolerance that they have for each other and the differences between them, I think, is really admirable. That's cool. So it, so speaking to your students, I'd love to hear you kind of explain the the uh, the origin and the mission behind Heart of Mexico, which you, you do with them. Um, so if you were to... Uh, just, take all the time you need but I, I think that's a that's a really cool project I'd love to hear more about yeah so the heart of Mexico was it it came you know when I first took the job at the university I felt like it was it was a foreign completely foreign place for me because I'd been you know wandering around the world mostly on my own and suddenly I'm in an institution there's all kinds of jargon I, the first faculty meeting I sat in I understood like 20% of what people were talking about <laughs> and I felt like somebody had put me in the seat of a really big machine with lots of levers and controls that I didn't know how to operate I knew that the machine was powerful but I just couldn't operate it and the heart of Mexico was the first time I like tried to make the machine work the way I wanted it to work. And I wanted to create a class that was collaborative, that was interdisciplinary, that where photographers and writers would work together, they'd have to talk to each other Mm -hmm. because that's what I did in the field. I wanted it to be international because that's where I came from. I wanted it to have some sort of anthropological uh, connection because that's where I came from. Uh, So it was really, I just created the the dream class for me. And in the context of North Texas, where, you know, upwards of 40% of our population is, has some uh, familial connection with someone in Mexico, either because they're immigrants themselves or their parents are, or they're married to an immigrant, then I really wanted to do something that involved Mexico as well. Um, Because you know, Mexico, Mexicans aren't our neighborhood neighbors. Like they're literally our family members mm-hmm. in North Texas. So, so how does the project work? You take your students, uh, how many of them participate? What is the actual, I mean, start to finish? 
Um, it's small, plan. actually. You okay. know, I, I take about a dozen students from here, and there are a dozen students from Mexico. Um, and we go down to a small town in Mexico. We have an intensive one week of training, and then they're dispersed into um, that small town or a neighboring small town in groups. Each group has a photographer, a videographer, a writer, a translator, and an anthro- um, a student anthropologist. Um, and they're, the groups are mixed. They're like, you know, as much as possible, 50% American students, 50% Mexican students. Uh, they're working interdisciplinarily. They immerse themselves in a small town. They get to know a character, and they produce a story package, which has both has video, photography, and writing, um, and is also narrative. So it's a narrative storytelling project. And the six projects together form a kind of online magazine that, that we call the Heart of Mexico. Very cool. So and that's as, as as quickly as I can say. And if, if people are interested in, in checking out some of those stories, it's the They website. can go to heartofmexicostories.com. All one word, heartofmexicostories.com. Great. Cool. And you'll see the most recent project that's there is about immigration. And we went to villages where 75% of the villages have migrated uh, not immigration, but migration. They've yeah. migrated uh, for work. Some of them locally, some of them regionally, some of them internationally. So and I imagine there's one of the overriding forces at work in any of the villages you go to is poverty. Um, is that an accurate? Uh... I wouldn't say that's accurate. We go to we go to small towns um, where you know compared to maybe what students are used to may look like a poor town, but compared to their neighboring towns, they may actually be quite wealthy because they've got um, remittances from their relatives who are working in the United States, for example. So some of the towns are are better off than the towns, the neighboring towns. And what, um, what do you bring from your war experience to, to, I mean, how, is there a piece of that that applies to just uh, a, a, a human story oh, totally. on the ground. That- yeah, totally. I mean, the ability to, um, you know, and, and we talk about this explicitly in our training, like how do you go into a place where you're the outsider, where mm-hmm. you're the idiot? How do you gain their trust and draw out a story that is relatable to your audience where you came from? So is there is there a helicopter education piece to, to your yeah. classes before yeah, you go? Uh, I mean, the simplest <laughs> advice is you find a local guide. You find someone who can help you understand, you know, what's happening and let them take you around because they open doors that otherwise would be closed to you. And the second piece of advice is to be a participant. So when you go into someone's home, spend some time, yeah, you can even have a meal with them, and when the meal's over, help them wash the dishes. You know, you have you participate in their lives to a certain extent. At some point, you have to stop and you have to distance yourself so mm-hmm. that you can take video or take pictures or whatever. But you become a participant observer. You find a local guide to educate you, and um, and you remain open minded and non judgmental. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, Liz, do you have anything else on that piece of it? All right, I, I, I do have one question. This doesn't have to be the last one, but if it is, great. That's fine. Uh, I, I like the you said that your dad was a pastor, but was more of a an ag, oh, I don't remember the phrase. He I, I called him a practicing agnostic. A pragmas, practicing agnostic. <laughs> he, but I know your dad also has like a really interesting sort of civil rights, um, like justice based bent, like which yeah. is very. 
different than than my particular faithy upbringing. So I'm cur- I'd love to hear. I mean, my father's. I, I I hesitate to speak for him, but his father, my father's faith is very broad and applies to every aspect of his life, and so it turns into political action. It turns into the kind of. Um, the kind of interactions that we has with people, the service that he performs, his pastoral services and all that kind of thing. What church? He's, he's Presbyterian, uh-huh. PCUSA, okay. so the, the more liberal wing of the Presbyterian yep. church. And, you know, his, he's always approached the, the Bible as a, as a text that's open for interpretation that, you know, this is more like poetry than it is in constitutional law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it was, it was much easier for me to have conversations. Maybe it's because of who I am that that made it possible for me to have conversations with him that way. I can huh. never get to the, to the point where we're like, you know, you start with this infallible text and you go from there. It was always easier for me to talk to him as a point of as a text that's open to. And when you say always, you remember feeling this way from yeah, the from time when you I were... was very young. Oh wow, yeah, maybe you had that too. I don't no, know. No. <laughs> no, no, it was the it was the inerrant word of God, and there was you, know, you don't ask questions about it. You just nod in agreement and find ways to ignore the stuff that makes you uncomfortable when you can't figure out how it could be the inerrant word of God. Oh, no, no, it, was, it wasn't like that. I mean, we had like concordances all over the house. And oh. so we, so whenever something would come up, there were, you know, my father would dig into the concordance and we would find multiple translations and then we would compare it to the, what was happening in history at the oh, time. I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, Matt's going to start crying. Yeah, so like, you know, and some of these phrases that don't make any sense, like you'd have, he would like, he would, he had a good way of showing the historical context with in which it did make sense. <laughs> you know, like the whole Genesis story, for example, you know, when I would talk to him and he would talk about the Genesis story, it was never like, this is the creation that happened in six days. He said, this is a piece of poetry that the ultimate point of which is to draw together these creation myths that came from other cultures and reinvent them more or less in exactly their same form, but with one key difference, and that is a monotheistic God as <laughs> opposed to uh, other versions of the text where the sea was its own god and the mm. earth and skies, mm. the earth was its own god and the sky was its own god. And so, you know, those are the kinds of conversations see, that I'm he would have, have to, with me. I, you, you may not. I, I, now I wish you were in the room because I, I, like, I would want to challenge even that assessment because the, uh, the word for God in the creation story in Genesis is Elohim, which is plural. So there is still a, a polytheistic... Well, that, that's what that. he would use as evidence. Oh, yeah. So, so that's the evidence that this is drawn together. That's a, precisely look what he was talking about. Look at you. Look at you. You didn't know. You didn't know the soldiers, but you know the Elohim uh, plural. That's uh, all right. That's but the it. word for darkness, if you look, and I, and I can't. I'm not. You know, I can't up you on this. I don't know the actual. I'm not trying uh, to up Hebrew you. This word. is a conversation. <laughs> but the word for darkness is also in the Babylonian creation myth. That same word is actually a creature. You know, it's a god. It's a god. It's the name of a god. Uh-huh, right, but in the right, right. Genesis story, it's just me. It's translated as the darkness. Um, you know, darkness was on the face of the earth. Yeah. You know, but in previous the Babylonian creation myth it's the name of an actual god and so that's also evidence for how this story was you know a reformation of other stories for the purpose uh, the polemical purpose of postulating one god instead of many. I see so you don't it sounds like you don't necessarily have the uh the uh Disappointing your parents by not like fully adopting the uh, the point of view that you were raised with. My my parents and I are are in a lifelong um, strategy of adjusting to each other. Okay, that's good. I I feel better. So you have pretty healthy. (laughs) Good, good, good. That's uh, that's encouraging. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, Same. Yeah, I have a good relationship with them. It's 
But, you know, we just, I, and I, you know, I think of that like the Christianity language of my father as something that he speaks really well, and I, I'm fluent in my understanding of it, yeah. but I'm not fluent in the speaking, and, you know, I'm not, I, understand. I can't speak the language, but I can comprehend it. Well, the other thing that reminds me of that we've talked about before is the way you're, you're, it sounds like your dad talks about faith reminds me of the way that Marilyn Robinson writes about faith and, and her writings and, and Gilead yeah. and Lila. That's and, a very fair comparison. Oh, oh yeah. cool. It's very yeah. cool. And I, I'm, we, so she, was she a guest lecturer at your same college? I can't remember why we had a conversation about Marilyn Robinson before. Yeah, well, I love those books. And yeah, uh, I have seen her do a guest lecture. She actually, you were talking with Kale about her being a guest lecturer, and Kale didn't have such a positive experience oh, with the lecture. Oh, it was Kale. Okay, yeah, it was yeah. Kale. All yeah. right. Yeah, she, she felt that it was judgy and, and yeah. strict and okay. But, you know, I'm okay with that. Right, like, right. You, know, you don't have to like the people whose artwork you appreciate. No, and I'm not, and Marilyn, if you're listening, well, you know, it, Marilyn's not listening. You don't have to worry. Gilead and Lila are two of my favorite novels of all time, but her essays strike me the same way they struck Kale as a little bit bit too rigid. In novel form, so beautiful, right? Yeah, stunning. Utterly stunning. Yeah, and you can, as a son of a minister, like you... It's believable. Yeah, absolutely. She, absolutely. No, one of the most plausible recreations of an, an incredibly um, deep-hearted mm-hmm. pastor that I've ever read. So, yeah. yeah. No, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. yeah, impressive. Did that fix a little hole that was inside of you? Did we, like, plug no, a little No, it just made me jealous. That has oh. created a jealousy hole for his, <laughs> his, uh, his upbringing. That, okay. Well, we can work through that next time. Can we? I mean, I, we're probably going to try. Sounds good. Right, does this bring us to a close? I think it does. Well, Liz, you had said that if I I could bring in questions of my own. Oh, I did. Oh, no. I totally did. No, but oh, I, shit. I actually didn't bring in any questions, but I have a request. Oh, okay. I would love for you to um, to end this show with an acapella rendition of your opening theme song. <laughs> Thorn, I have been sick and everyone can hear that I've been sick. It is the only thing that I've asked in this entire podcast. <laughs> this one thing. Oh, my God. Can just imagine. Imagine what this will mean to me. Can I just say though that when we recorded it, uh, so what what happened was Matt like made it, and then he was like, "Just listen to it in your headphones and sing along." So I just sang along, and then he like added it, and I think I remember saying something about how like. I'm just glad I will never have to do that again because that was so much worse than recording any of this podcast. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was tough for me too, and. Uh, but and like I, we haven't done it, like she like singing in front of somebody else. Oh, and a, I could do the oh. beatboxing if you want. Okay, go. Yeah, you right. got like if the, you're involved, you got like a robot fart noise. Yeah, in the absolutely. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, <laughs> yeah, you do that. It's questionable. People. Questionable. Theme song. It's just a temporary theme song. <laughs> So don't, don't get, get too attached. I love it. Thank you so much. That's the only thing I wanted. That's the only thing you made my day. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. That, that was horrifying. Thank you for thank being you, on our podcast. And that completes Questionable People episode four. 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 Uh, that was produced by, we don't actually have a producer. We have an editor now. I think we have a producer. I guess, though, he doesn't want to say what gets cut. Well, I don't think he wants to be blamed for everything production-wise in here. I wouldn't so blame I, him for anything. No, because he hasn't even seen our space. He's never. He hasn't touched our microphones. We set up our own microphones and set our levels. I think and all he that. knows. 
He knows. But he did graciously offer to edit and mix our podcast for us. This is Aaron Garcia we're talking about, our new editor. Uh, Story consulting or editorial consulting by Ashley Bull. Yep. I've never heard of that person. You have. Should definitely not pretend like you don't know your wife. Okay. But it's great. She listens to the whole episode, tells us what we should lose. Yep. Where we're boring. Yep. It's great. It is. It's very helpful. Uh, so now we have a team. We do. Uh, That's it. That, is that it? I felt like there's. Oh, no. I remember the other thing I was going to say. We didn't get this the last time. Um, so please. Uh, Please uh, rate us on iTunes. We've uh, it it helps, or we've heard it helps. It doesn't it doesn't help from our you know crippling vanity point of view to be rated well. But like, I just know every other podcast asks that. people to like, review, subscribe, rate, yeah, all that. And so we're asking you, yep. if you made it this far into the podcast, you can spare another ten seconds. And you're also probably one of the few pe- people. That's done that. Should I say that out loud? Nope. No, no. we got to pretend. Everyone listens to all episodes all the way through. Yep, definitely. I know I do that for all the podcasts I listen to. Yeah. And I listen to all of my friends' podcasts that have podcasts from start to finish. Yep, absolutely. Because that's what friends do. That is. They lift it's, each other it's up. It's one of the def- new definitions of friendship. We've probably gone on too long with this. Uh, no, I think closing. it was just right. So, yeah, leave us a review. Um, we do have a Facebook page. Oh, yeah, we have a website, too. I, we have a website. I'm thinking about making an Instagram page just because I use Instagram a lot. Uh, I, I would mostly be for Instagram stories for, like, dumb pictures and just follow up from conversations. Matt doesn't want anything to do with it, which well, is totally fine. I've also been locked out of my Instagram account by a hacker, so if, if you guys could keep tabs on that.